Good morning and thanks for being patient with us today. My name is Bryce Whiteman from TradingMarkets.com. Our guest this morning began his career on Wall Street 16 years ago. He's been an active trader in government bonds and bond futures. Currently, he's the chief bond market strategist at Miller Tabak. He's also the CEO of BondTalk.com, which is another very interesting site. He makes regular appearances on CNBC. As a matter of fact, uh, he was quoted on Friday at CNBC. Uh, also, CNN FM, Bloomberg TV. He's a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Investors Business Daily, CNBC.com. Uh, the cocktail party Friday night, I had the chance to speak to with, with him. He's a very interesting guy. I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Tony Crescenzi. Thank you very much, Bryce. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate your being here. I think it gives you all an advantage coming to think about the bond market for a change. I think uh, most stock investors try to ignore the bond market, and I say they do so at their peril. I think we learned again this year with the experiences of the market that no one should ignore the bond market and movement of interest rates. There's no question that I think that the deleterious impact of the Fed's rate hikes really hit home eventually. It took the speculative fervor right out of the market. So I think most of the pain that people suffered this year could have been easily avoided by uh, sticking to the adage, don't fight the Fed, because clearly that would have been good advice for anyone, I think, throughout this year. I mean, the Fed, in their campaign since last year, of course, they've raised rates uh, numerously, I think seven times since last June. Uh, they've been very intent on trying to get the speculative element out of the markets, which they've done a great deal uh, so far this year. You see, with the fall of the dot-com, a big part of the uh, speculative fervor is, has been removed from the markets. And I think the Fed wants that. The Fed's been telling us lately they feel it's, it has been removed somewhat. In their latest minutes from their most recent FOMC meeting, they said that in August that uh, the wealth effects, the, the effect on the economy from high stock prices, may be disappearing or about to disappear. It takes many quarters for that to happen, but with the Dow down or flat in about the last year and a half, and with it usually taking about six to eight quarters for wealth effects to work their way through the system, I think the Fed is comfortable now that perhaps they've done their job. And so they're going to look past what's happened uh, in stocks at this point, the $4 trillion increase in household wealth for the last five years. I think they're going to ease up on us eventually. So I think you're all taking a great step in coming here to, to think about the Fed and to follow the bond market generally, I think, is good advice for anyone. Because technicals alone won't help you, I think, when following stocks, following the stock market. You can't ignore the bond market each and every day. There are times when you really need to pay attention to it. So, uh, I mean, a good example, I think, for this year of how it might have helped you, if you felt at the start of the year the Fed might continue raising rates and sharply, you might have changed your tune on many of the consumer cyclical stocks. Of course, the retailers, the car companies, some of the home supply companies, let's say like Home Depot, good example this week. Uh, you might have been steered in the right direction, away from the consumer cyclicals. Had you feared more rate increases, you might have had a sense that basic material companies might get hammered this year. The chemicals, the metals, and the papers, they were all beaten up this year. I think it had everything to do with the normal factors that ensue when the Fed raises rates. So, again, here's a great example and illustration of uh, the importance of following interest rates because it can help you following stock sectors, not just in 
making assessments about the overall stock market. Uh, a good example as well would be what happened toward the summer when the stock market was having its problems. We all knew it might help the interest rate environment and therefore help financials. Financials since July have had a very good run. It has everything to do with the fact that fears about the Fed have subsided and the yield curve started to steepen, meaning that short rates have performed better than long-term interest rates. And that's happened each day basically since May 16th. The yield curve stopped inverting where the bond was doing so well for a while. Uh, stopped inverting the day the Fed last raised interest rates, May 16th. And so I think if you had a sense then that that might be it, and that was a big rate increase, 50 basis points, matters had a sense that financials might eventually turn and could have timed yourself better in the financials. So I think there's plenty you can get from the bond market, not just in terms of the overall market direction, but in terms of predicting uh, how the performance of various sectors that you're interested in uh, trading. Uh, on my desk, I, I find the importance of following bonds uh, very much illustrated. I sit with about 35 bond traders and near 20 stock traders, and they're all. My firm is a sell side firm, Miller Tabak and Company. We deal with some of the biggest hedge funds in the land. We've dealt, and I've been in the offices of Soros and the Steinharts and the Tiger Management of the world. Two have crumbled, of course, uh, in a sense, but we deal with most of the major money managers at hedge funds, and I see the traders on my desk, since I've been there 10 years at that firm, uh, they use the, the, the bond market movement and the explanations that I give on the bond market to their advantage when they trade day in, day out. The equity traders that sit uh, to the left of me in my office uh, do thousands of options a day. They're some of the biggest options traders in the country. And when they're timing their entries and making their executions throughout the day, if I can give them a good explanation as to why the bond market has just moved in the way that it did, it helps them to decide, should I complete the order for my customer now or, or wait? Um, and plus, sitting on the desk, I get to hear from the customers how important following interest rates are to them. And I find that the best hedge funds in the land have, are in tune with the bond market constantly. And they seek out my advice, and I, they're on my daily email list. So I think, it's, I think the, the best of traders, without question, uh, don't ignore it. And they use, of course, all their other tools to their advantage on the stock market, all the, the technical tools, which there are plenty of in the bond market, which we'll elaborate on in a minute. Uh, but they, they use the bond market to their advantage nicely as well. So I'll try to give you some of the tools that might make it uh, a bit easier to follow the bond market, to make it be better for your personal trading and for your investments. And luckily, there's a, a few tools that I'll speak about that I think can give you the big picture. You don't have to follow a lot uh, when it comes to following the bond market in terms of getting a sense of what's really happening, what's next. But the few things that I might will show you, I think if you follow these things, they'll give you a very good sense as to what's next, perhaps, in the bond market. Okay, I will go first with, uh, I'd like to get right into the call-put ratio. Now this is the backwards way of looking at something the stock market looks like at, of course, the put-call ratio in the bond market. We sometimes do things backwards, it seems. But the call-put ratio, to me, has been a great gauge of sentiment in the bond market and is very reliable in terms of assessing what's next. Now, I'm a fundamentalist. You can go through the text. Keep going to find the, the chart on the call-put ratio. Just wait for that to come up a second. One second. Machine's kind of slow. 
Anyway, I'll background this thing in, before the chart comes up. Uh, <clears throat> as I was starting to say, I'm a fundamentalist. I like to follow the Fed and the economy and so forth, but I don't ignore technicals at all. Uh, I've noticed the biggest and the best all follow technicals, and it's extremely important. It's, self, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, so I follow a good number of them because I realize the impact that they can have. Uh, but I'm, again, I'm a fundamentalist at heart. But I use these technicals and I, I integrate them with the fundamentals. And it's been a good indicator for me. Uh, one thing about the call-put ratio, if you're familiar with it, it's just an assessment of the volume in calls relative to the volume in puts. Of course, the more calls that trade, the more bullish the market is. The more puts that trade, the more bearish the market is. And so we find that over time, if the level of call activity reaches certain points, that the market probably is overly bullish. And if the level of puts is high, the market is probably overly bearish. And there's been a very confined range on this call-put ratio over a number of years. It's made it a very good indicator in terms of assessing whether or not the market might be bottoming or topping at various times. Now, I've put this together with other indicators, of course, but I think uh, the call-put ratio is way up there. Now, the, in measuring this, we take the call volume and put volume seen at the Chicago Board of Trade, options on futures. Uh, it's been very reliable. Of course, options on futures are very actively traded in the bond market, and we see many, many institutions using them. I mean, all Wall Street firms are down there on the Board of Trade, and so therefore, the customers that they represent uh, represent a wide variety of uh, institutions. And so you're getting a good sense for what the, the, the entire market feels by following, following options on futures at the Board of Trade. And it's been very reliable. I use the Treasury bond instead of the Treasury notes. I find there's more of a speculative element in Treasury bonds, whereas Treasury notes contain other kinds of information that distort the picture. It's really the speculator that we're after. We want to know what they're up to, because they're the fringe player. They're the one, they're the camp that's going to bend first in the event of a problem. They're the one that's going to bend when there's a catalyst to turn the market around. They're going to be forced out the fastest. I find that following uh, uh, this ratio, therefore, gives you a good sense of the speculative element in the bond market, generally speaking. So I'll try to stay put. Okay, it's loading up. I like to follow the 10-day moving average. It's the only thing you can see up there right now. But uh, that's the clue. Uh, the 10-day moving average gives you the best sense. A one-day movement in the call-put ratio tells you nothing. It only tells you about yesterday's activity. I really don't give a damn except for, for what it tells you about what might happen this morning, the, the one-day ratio. The 10-day ratio tells you a lot about what might be happening, what might happen in the market in the next few weeks, which is what we care about, in the next few days, perhaps. But the one-day just doesn't tell you enough. The 10-day's been the most reliable of indicators, if, we, if it ever shows up. What a slow computer, huh? Need some RAM in this machine. All right. Okay, it's, it's a, just a bunch of lines, but uh, the key thing to notice is that there's a range, 0.8. There's an extreme range, of course, in 1998 during the Asian crisis. People got very optimistic. When the number's low, it indicates high put volume. When the number's high, it indicates high call volume. Because let's say at 1.4, which is usually the, ex the extreme, on the long side, there's 1.4 calls traded for every put. And at 0.8, it's 0.8 calls traded for every put. 
and it's it's in a, such a nice range and if I went back you'd see it's in the same range that it tells you that it's a reliable indicator uh, it doesn't bounce around uh, too much except within that range and rarely breaches it and I'll point out a couple of examples okay look to the left near April 98 you see of course the ratio was below 0.8 to 1 that of course was the start of a, uh, the, a bull run in the bond market near the time of the Asian crisis so there's excess pessimism there and then it was followed of course by excess optimism the 1.8 to 1 call ratio put call, call put ratio excuse me tremendous amount of optimism toward September 98 especially and the market really came in very very hard it's not surprising given the level of optimism at that time more recently if we look near January 2000 see the ratio got very high above the, the 1.4 that I consider the extreme yields hit a two-year high uh, at that point and I'm not surprised given the level of optimism there's so many examples in between I'm skipping them just to illustrate uh, then around uh, March of 2000 uh, there was an early rally that failed and you might see the let me if I can move over there there's a lot of pessimism there uh, followed by extreme pessimism as well right around here that was May of this year that was the bottom in the market not a coincidence probably but the market bottom generally speaking May of 2000 and we've been rallying ever since now you see the ratio is very low now and this was actually a few weeks ago uh, the bond market of course um, had a rally since then yields reached a new low for the year this year uh, this came as of course the stock market had its problems but there was excess pessimism a number of weeks ago and it foretold that the market might turn around uh, in fact though this week with the developments in stocks uh, the ratio by Thursday by Friday had gotten back into more over bullish territory near 120 and of course uh, Friday the bonds had a little bit of a problem with stocks up so it's a very reliable indicator uh, where do you get it you can get it from the Chicago Board of Trade cbot.com I have a website as, as we mentioned before bondtalk.com I have an area of market indicators I sum up the ratio for the day and the 10-day average uh, you can get it right from there under market indicators on the left navigation bar so a reliable one useful uh, for years I guess we should start moving to the next graph since it'll be about five minutes before it comes up a one footnote on options and the the importance of following them not just the volume is important in following uh, options on futures and bonds but the implied volatility if, if you're familiar with that it gives a sense for the pricing of options how expensive they are how cheap they are um, when I've, I found the implied volatility generally hovers around nine to ten percent in bonds meaning that the bond market expects movement of nine to ten percent in prices over the next year when that dips down and it has recently went down below eight percent it's a very good forecast there's the main point here that of where the market's headed next I mean does the market expect volatility if it's low it's not expecting much volatility if it's high it is I know Bill Gross, who in fact is on my email list for getting, he's a big manager of, of bonds at PIMCO, the biggest bond manager in the world, in fact. Um, he as well, um, lost my point for a second. 
I lost my point. Volatility. I was thinking of something else all of a sudden. He replied to my emails recently for like the first time ever. I thought I was thinking of throwing that in or not, which I just did. <laughs> but anyway, he, he does very large trades in volatility. Um, he tries to sell options, strangles, where you sell calls and puts on the market, thinking, hey, the market's not going to go down much. I don't think it's going up much either. So when he, and we've noticed their activity in the pit because it's so large that it can only be him, tens of thousands of contracts. When he uh, sells premium in that way, the market usually does stand put for a while. So when I see low volatility, in part because of big traders like PIMCO uh, coming into the market, I sense the market probably won't go anywhere anytime soon. And for you that follow stocks, I think if you, sense, if you see low implied volatility, expect the bonds not to be a factor for stocks for a little while. This is an accurate forecaster of where of the type of volatility you're going to get. And when it's high, look out. Something might be up in bonds. Be careful. There might be movement there that could affect you in the stock market. It's been very reliable. I think the bond market gets volatility right more than stocks, which I know this week, as an example, the VIX was extremely high, which was a sense of uh, maybe the sell-off was overdone, which we saw Friday. But I think the bond market more accurately forecasts volatility than the stock market does. Okay, moving on. Uh, there's something odd here that you'll never understand, maybe, or maybe you do. Aggregate duration. Uh, this is a measure of the bond market's sentiment toward well, conditions. Uh, duration is a measure of, of a bond's sensitivity to changes in interest rate. Um, for fixed income managers, they adjust the duration up and down, around 100%. If you're at 100% duration, relative to your bogey, like the Lehman Index. You're saying that I have the same risk profile as the Lehman Index. It's akin to someone in the equity, an index manager in stocks, in the S&P, who basically holds all S&P stocks identically to that of the S&P Index. And uh, I think when they, what they try to do then in fluctuating their duration is to try to be a little longer sometimes when they're bullish, a little shorter sometimes when they're bearish on on conditions in the market. But it, it reaches extremes, as with the call-put ratio. And these things all tie together, I must say. But generally speaking, portfolio managers don't like to go below 95% of their bogey, like the Lehman Index. These bogeys are the things they're judged against, what their performance is judged against. They want to try to outperform it. So sometimes they'll say, I want to outperform my index. I want to be a little shorter. But they don't go below 95%, because doing so might make them a little bit off the, off the wall. I mean, if, if they underperform sharply, how do they explain to investors that, oh, well, I was 0% long, I was all cash, while the bond market ran away from them? Uh, they can't. So they stay within a very well, relatively confined range. Uh, and this tells us, though, a lot about their sentiment, because we have a nice, nicely defined range, usually 95 to 105, roughly. There was that extreme again during the Asian crisis when it got up to 107, just as the call put ratio was extremely high as well. Uh, so there are a number of periods I could point out. Toward the left, the first bottom, near 95%. Uh, that was the, the last Fed rate hike in 1995 occurred then. It was a breakout point in the bond market. People were short. Short not just in the level of puts that they owned, but in this way. Money managers, the cash side of the market, the real movers of the market, these players were short. 
And at 95%, usually it doesn't go much further. So when I saw that, no question, I was saying the market might bottom here. We've got everyone short. They can't get shorter. They won't get shorter. Managers just don't. They don't get below 95% of their bogey. They feel it's too risky. They feel they might undermine their credibility with their investors. So they don't go below 95. So things couldn't get much worse at the time. It was a big movement then. 95, 1995, the bonds uh, returned over 30%, and so did the S&P. No coincidence. So I think if you followed what happened there in bonds, it might have helped you in stocks in 1995 as well. Then there was another peak after 95. You could see around February 96, uh, no coincidence, yields peaked then uh, after a nice long run, that 30% annualized return that they had in 95. Uh, more recently, that 108, near 107%, excuse me, just as with the call put ratio, that was the end of the Asian crisis. People were extremely long. Uh, managers felt, given what was happening, that uh, Armageddon was coming or something. And uh, they were very long fixed income and bonds. Uh, that was an extreme, that was an event situation. You know, it, when it got to 105, it would, have been, it would have been risky to go against the market. There were developments there that you had to have taken into account to say that this extreme could be justified, it could last, let me um, not stand in the way of it. So and that's what happened. That's why it went up to 107. Uh, more recently, it's gone down. It was, the market was a little short. Just as I showed with the call-put ratio, there was a lot of put volume. Now, uh, recently, people had gotten a little short, and the market rallied has since that low. I think, in fact, the duration numbers are getting closer to 100% of bogey. So there's another one of those things that you, if you just follow this, I combine this one with the call-put ratio in particular, and one other thing we'll talk about next. Uh, those things alone tell me everything about positions. I wonder how people are positioned, generally speaking. Uh, oh, where to get this from? I'm, again, my, I'm not trying to tout my website too much, except that it's useful to go to it in this area, the market indicators button under duration, and I have the various surveys. There are some, there are surveys done by institutions. In fact, there's one of them by Reed Thunberg. They, they do a survey of 70 money managers covering it $1 trillion in assets. So when I see that, I have a strong sense that uh, I'm getting a good representation of the fixed income world. Uh, but the more reliable one is Stone and McCarthy. People might be familiar with them, smra.com. It's a subscriber-based service, but I give the duration numbers in that area of my website, and uh, the news services sometimes report on this as well. Um, very, very useful, very reliable. Okay. Right, so we're going to move on to, hopefully... The CFTC numbers, speculators' net positions, and T-bond futures. I don't know if you've heard of the CFTC's Commitments of Trader Report. This is a very reliable gauge of how long or short people are in the market. You can do this, look at this in well, as well in every, just about every commodity. You can look at it in S&P futures, too. Um, oil, grains, uh, currencies. The CFTC puts numbers together. This text here that you have, you can read later. Um, that'll help you maybe to understand it better if I don't do a good enough job. <laughs> but uh, the CFTC tallies up who's long, who's short. Commercials, non-commercials. Commercials are the hedgers. So if it's oil you're looking at, the commercials are Exxon and Mobil. The non-commercials are the guys standing in the pit trying to make a bet on the market. 
knowing what's happening in these in those two groups is everything in terms of following uh, CFTC's numbers. But following the speculators, as I said, with the call put ratio, is the most important thing. If you follow what they do, you get a better sense as to the excesses of the market. The commercials are more in tune. We call them smart money, of course. And I always think of uh, the speculators as dumb money, of course. They're always wrong. That's the way it turns out. That's the way the charts show, which we'll show you in a second. You know, one thing about why it's better to follow the specs, the, the capital, they have less capital. Then It's not as deep. Uh, so when they take an extreme position, they can't do much more. They're done. And as well, when the market goes against them, because the capital's not as deep, they're quicker to get out. They're more scared. Uh, and it's much more important, therefore, to follow them. The commercial will have the steady hand. The commercial will do things that fit with their business plans. If it's in energy, Exxon's going to move based mostly upon their needs to hedge, generally speaking, and general sentiments about the market. They won't take extreme positions, not like the, the speculator will, the so-called non-commercials. These are the two groups again. And we're still waiting. It should be. This is probably it right here. bunch of numbers, but uh, suffice it to say that there are a few periods there, just like with the call ratio and aggregate duration. And these things tend to tie hand in hand. They almost always happen together. And the best example, again, is that peak near at the end of the Asian crisis, very long was the market, near 100,000 net contracts is what, the way it works. Because the CFTC puts the numbers together on commercials and non-commercials, and within them, longs and shorts, and you just take the longs and the shorts and do the math, and you get either long or short. And they were long 100,000 Treasury bond contracts at the time, extremely long. Uh, no coincidence then, toward this beginning of this year, record net short. What happened? The bonds, the long bond bottomed in January. The rest of the market bottomed in May, but I'm looking here in terms of the, the long bond. It was a good indicator. Then the stock market fell, and many other things happened, of course. Uh, recently, the market's gotten short, had gotten short, just as I showed with the put volume and duration. And no coincidence, the market rallied since then. People were short. That happens all the time. Um, there's just so many cases like this, and just putting these three things together, uh, the duration, the call port ratio, and the CFTC data gives you real strong sense. You can go to cftc.gov for the numbers on if you want to look at other markets. I follow bonds, so on my website you have uh, this on the, on, under market indicators. But again, the CFTC has a tons of numbers on all the commodities if you want to track any of them, S&P futures or what have you. Okay, we're going to move on to uh, another thing I'd like to use as a guide, the two-year note. Another, you don't need any data from anyone for this one. Just do this in your head if we can get to the chart on it. You know, people like to argue over what's the benchmark for the bond market. Is it the 10-year? Is it the bond? Uh, to me, it's the two-year, believe it or not. Uh, it just tells you about the excesses regarding sentiment toward the Fed. And sentiment toward the Fed is more important than anything, usually, for the bond market. So just looking at the two-year alone can tell you about possible excesses. 
because what we find is the two-year stays somewhere around the Fed funds rate, which is the rate the Fed targets. And here it is, the Fed funds rate is purple, the darker one, and the two-year note's the one above it. Rarely does a two-year note get below the Fed funds rate and yield. Three times in 11 years, it's been below the Fed funds rate, three times. All three times, the Fed cut rates within a few months. Now, it's the fourth time. It's just broken through. The two years way below the Fed funds rate. Some of that has to do with the fact that there's less supply of them now. But the rest of it, that's part of the story. But most of it's because people are optimistic about the Fed. In fact, the Fed funds futures contracts today indicate a 60% probability being priced in of a rate cut by next March. So the market's saying there's going to be a rate cut soon. Now, it gets a little subjective from here sometimes. Do you believe that the market's right? <laughs> Will they actually uh, cut rates in the next few months? You have to make that assessment. So there's a little bit of thinking here. Is the market right? But, but you just have to know, is, what's the market price for? Is, is there a lot of optimism or not regarding what the Fed's going to do next? The two-year will tell you more than the bond, more than the 10-year, because those tell you too many other things about inflation expectations, speculation, hedging, many, many things, mortgage-related activity and so on. But the two-year, because of its close relationship to the Fed funds rate, tells you a lot more about feelings on the Fed. And that's what I'm really looking for. What do you think about the Fed? Are you really worried about the Fed out there? And we saw that toward, of course, the bottom of the market in the spring. There was a lot of fear about the Fed. It's hard to see it on the chart, but the two-year was well above the Fed funds rate in a way that it probably shouldn't have been, given that there was less supply of them. It should be close to the Fed funds rate. Let's say 30 basis points over the Fed funds rate, which is currently 6.5. The Fed funds rate is 6.5 today. So let's say the two-year at 680, 30 over, that's normal. Go to 50, 75 over, then you know the market's saying, I think there's, we think there's going to be tons of rate, cut, rate increases, rate increases down there because we need to have a high yield over the Fed funds rate because the Fed funds rate is going to go up. So we've got to stay above it like we usually do, move up and down on it. So. Uh, it, it, it's a tremendous gauge on, on sentiment on the Fed, and, but it requires a little bit of subjective analysis. Okay. All right. Um, I just want to move on to uh, the Fed in a small remaining time, just in a way to follow the Fed. Uh, we can get. Oh, well, there was a two-year versus a thirty-year. The two-year is closely tied to the thirty-year. So, in a sense, we had a quick chart. It's in the book. You'd see. Uh, you can go to next. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're closely tied together, the two-year versus the 30-year. Uh, so I say uh, following the two-year gives you a sense of the 30-year. Okay, we can go on to the next one, Bryce. There's a, there's a way to follow the Fed. I think I found this great uh, thing, well, I can't think of a word, regarding uh, Greenspan and his Humphrey Hawkins testimonies twice a year. Really good uh, way to trade the market. Twice a year he reports to Congress he's required to give up a lot of information about what they're thinking. He's, the, the territory to which he's drawn puts him in territory that's very market sensitive and the market moves. The market takes what he says at his word. Is there a, should be a table. The market's, there it is. The market takes what he says at his word that it's a representation of current Fed thinking, and, th and this occurs every February and July, and there's sharp market movement, the bond future to the left side, the two columns you see in February and July, these are moves in 30 seconds, 
Now, the bond market doesn't move by that much every day. You can see rarely is it less than a point. I mean, since 94, except that 1830 second move in 1998, we've had a point, point moves. In fact, the average move on a day of Fed, his Humphrey Hawkins testimonies is 33, 30 seconds. But the important thing is something I didn't put on the chart is that the table is that um, a week later, the move is doubled. So whichever direction the market moves the day of Humphrey Hawkins, these testimonies, uh, it'll probably it'll double that move the following week. So if it moves a point the day of, it'll have moved two points a week later. And a month later, it's still moving in the same direction. And it affects stocks in the same way because they care about bonds. And uh, So I say the, the idea with this is whatever happens day of, continue with that trade in that direction for the next week, for the next month. But the next month scenario is just depends. So many other things come into play as time plays out. But in terms of the following week, it's very reliable in terms of movement. Because it begins to be all this fear coming in, usually, it seems, about the Fed and Greenspan. Greenspan. But uh, it has a tremendous market impact. The, again, the message from, from days to weeks on the market. So you're looking at near two months of the year, one-sixth of the year, being determined by a speech by Greenspan. Uh, because part of the reason is that the, the markets know the Fed doesn't change their views on a dime. Uh, so whatever he says that day is going gonna to be uh, alive uh, the following week and the week after that and, and even more. The Fed doesn't change their tune for many, many months generally. And so uh, that's why I think the market takes it so seriously. Uh, in terms of following other people besides Greenspan, I think Fed watching is a very easy game. I'd like to move on to this a table that shows Fed's, a bunch of Fed quotes. You know, following the Fed to me is kind of easy because there are 12 members. There's six governors who serve 14-year terms and five presidents who rotate each year except for the New York Fed, which is a permanent, has a permanent seat. Well, here they are. There's supposed to be 12. Right now there's two vacancies, which, uh, as an aside, the next president is going to choose the next two Fed governors who sit on 14-year terms. So like the Supreme Court, in a sense, uh, the next president is going to have a big influence on the direction of monetary policy because two of the six governors is, uh, will be appointed uh, by the next president. Very important. They're going to have two very big votes, uh, and governors are more powerful than presidents, the ones on the bottom. But the whole idea is to follow these, hey, there's no women. Usually there is. I think uh, the Fed missed on that one then. There's some alternate members. They, they, Kathy Minahan, I think, will be a, a voting member next year. But to follow the Fed, it's kind of easy. Follow these people. Just follow them day in, day out when they speak. And what I know some of the big hedge funds do, I mean, because I know I've, I've gotten stumped by them a number of times. They said, did you read that speech? I say, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I may not have read it at that moment. I usually have to read these things on the way home. But uh, they read the speeches. They read them because it really is very telling. And it's not that many of them. So you've got 12 people. Where if they have to do a speech, go to the Fed's website, and you take it from the website. The speech is right on the home page, usually under news or something on the left side. And there's also an area for speeches. You can look them up. They're very revealing. All you have to do is follow 12 people, and they all sound the same when they want to give a message. And I have a, well, let me just do one thing first. They're hawks and doves. I have the scale, it's hard to see, but and this again is also on my website under Federal Reserve. 
just like there are Democrats and Republicans, there are hawks and doves. Hawks tend to want to raise in interest rates more quickly or cut rates more slowly than doves would. And you got you have to know their background, just as you would have to know the background of someone in Washington who says, let's cut taxes. If a Republican says that, who cares? They always want to cut taxes. If a Democrat says it, oh, man, oh, my God, they've woken up. Don't forget, as inside Reagan tax cuts gave us the growth in the 90s. Remember that? And deregulation. Okay. Um, opinion. That's an opinion. Okay. Uh, it's hard to see by this, but it's in your handout. I just I underlined a lot of things. This all occurred in September, which to me told me a lot about what the Fed was going to say at their meeting. This happens all the time. They all say, I use look at phraseology. I look for them to say the same thing. You know, if I see, because it's just, it's just great. My, so I always keep the notes of what they say and, and the text, the most recent stuff. And when I see the same thing said twice, I say, ah, let me keep looking for this. And then you see another guy, say, then another guy, another guy. And then, you know, this is what they're thinking. This is, it's policy. Because to get, hawks and doves, just like Republicans and Democrats, on the same page, you really need them to uh, be in uniform uh, on this particular issue. And when they are sounding in unison, clearly there's some kind of an agreement on where they stand. Yes? That's what, yeah? Right, the Fed's just talking tough now. The Fed takes time to, I mean, it looks like the Fed's I mean, wanting to raise rates again, right? Well, that's the, that's the thing to maybe as, as a worry about the two-year, that maybe the bond market's overdone because the Fed's telling us something possibly different. But the Fed, the way they work, they've had only no no quarters of weak growth in hand. Last quarter, second quarter, grew at 5.6%. They're not ready to publicly, we know what they're thinking. They're not ready to publicly say, yeah, it's okay, we may cut rates at some point. But they have to talk talk. They want to keep the market down. But it was important, though, what happened during September. Their tough talk, I think, was a con contributed to the stock market's problems because that Fed policy statement was very tough uh, on, the, on uh, I forgot the day it was, but in September. <laughs> but at their meeting, they, they said, they gave us two concerns. They said, we're still worried about the tight labor market. We're still worried about, now we're worried about oil and the effect on inflation expectations. Um, that no one expected. But if you had looked at the statements throughout the month, it was a quite uh, stark to me that they were speaking in unison. They kept saying risks are to the upside in one way or another. They usually use the same phrase, on the upside, blah, blah, blah. And somewhere else it said it down below. I, have, I don't have it all on the screen. But risks are to the upside. So the Fed continued to feel that the bias of risk was skewed toward more inflation. There's no doubt that they were going to say that again in September, just based on watching these few people. I mean, it's like a mystery. I mean, but here they give you all the clues. You know who the players are. They're giving you everything they say, the text of it completely, the minutes from the meetings they have to tell you what they're thinking, like you're know, like a fly on the wall at their meetings. So combined, you have a real strong sense for what they're thinking. Sorry. Yeah, I think the Fed was clearly trying to tell us, because the equity market, you remember, in August, was a good month. Fed, did, maybe to neutral. Right, people might have expected the bias to go to neutral. But I think it was very surprising to some people. Um, but the reason it occurred, these statements throughout September, they were thinking of what was happening in August to stocks. 
you had a big jump, of course, and they were probably concerned that yet, hey, the economy really hasn't slowed for long enough. We haven't seen that quarter print yet of weak growth. We have, again, the last reported quarter was 5.6%. Uh, they wanted to sound tough just to keep the markets at bay a little longer because they think in longer term uh, scenarios. All right, it's, it's only, yes, stocks have been having problems, but they've not been, we haven't seen the influence yet on the economy because only maybe only half the households own stocks. Maybe that's the reason, whatever the reason. They said, we need to have a weak number in hand. We need more of this. A couple of quarters of it, the third quarter maybe, and uh, the fourth quarter that we're in now. Then they'll start to lighten up. I think So I think if you get a weak print, I think it's the 27th of the month on GDP, uh, the Fed will lighten up a little because they'll sense, all right, well, now we're in the midst of that second quarter of weak growth. And maybe these four E's gripping the markets will go away. We've got energy, equities, the euro, and the election. All these things are really hurting the markets these days. All of them will clear up slowly, the four E's, and uh, I think things will be a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't like, um, maybe it's his age. So he's 74. <laughs> I don't know. He's afraid he doesn't want it to disappear. He's, it's his time to start collecting. He probably does get it, right? That is it. Uh, I think, in fact, one thing on Greece, I think he's going to retire within the next year to two. He has four years left, but my call, I'm going to put an article out on about this soon. Stir some waves, hopefully. I think he's going to quit. I think he's old enough. He, he just wants to let the next president get settled in. Then you're going to start to get feelings next year when the next president gets settled in. He's going. He's leaving. I really think that. It's not like Japan when you have 90-year-old people running the country. You know? So uh, it won't be that way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, in 98 as well, um, Rubin intervened on the dollar. He's, he's, he knows Wall Street. He did it at about 8.01 or 7.59 a.m., the desks are changing places from London to New York. There was no futures trading for 20 minutes. People that had futures were totally burned. There was no way out. There's no way to trade at the time. So no, no question. They move in ways to burn the speculator. Rubin uh, is a very especially astute in that, and that's why I hope that I wish Summers would leave, but not leave. He's good, but he's just uh, doesn't. He's not in tune with the markets. In times of crisis, in times of crisis, I don't think he'd handle as well as Rubin. I'd rather see Wall Street. Would rather see more importantly uh, a fellow Wall Streeter uh, in the Treasury, because they know how to handle the, the markets and they know how to speak to the markets well. Like recently, Summers, after intervention, uh, spoke. We want a strong dollar after they had just intervened to help the euro, and the euro started to slip again. So you know, you need to say things to hurt the markets, not help them. So that's the way it works. Any other questions, anyone? Okay, okay I think we have to wrap up because I think we can talk afterward if you like, uh, individually with me. And uh, I think there are other conferences I'm sure you'd be happy to go and see. I'd like to. Thank you for all, all of you for coming. I appreciate it. And have a good day. Thank you. Thank you.